Matthew Ho, back in 2009, September the 10th, you wrote the following. Dear Ambassador Powell, it is with great regret and disappointment I submit my resignation from my appointment as a political officer in the Foreign Service and my post as the senior civilian representative for the U.S. government in Zabul province. What was that? That was, and, um, and, and first of all, thank you for having me here, but um, uh, that, was, that was almost 10 years ago now. And, and it's hard to express how I was feeling then compared to now and what has occurred uh, since then. I had no expectation of uh, that letter actually becoming public. Um, I had no expectation to become uh, an anti-war activist or a peace activist or a veteran for peace. Uh, I had, uh, and, and tragically, I had no expectation that we'd be sitting here in 2019 talking about this war. Uh, in Afghanistan, um, the way it's been escalated, the way it has escalated every year, uh, the countless lives that have just been uh, wasted, and uh, the continual suffering. Um, so it's it, it's shocking to hear it. Uh, it is, and it's it's very surreal for me to be sitting here with you right now, Brian. So what what's your background leading up to when you re uh, resigned from the State Department? Yeah, I. Uh, I went to college and graduated college and worked in publishing and, and fi doing financing, uh, doing finance. And uh, I didn't uh, have a military family background. I had an uncle who had been in Germany at uh, the same time as Elvis Presley. Um, and that's about the biggest military connection we had. And so when I joined the Marine Corps um, a couple years after college, it was mainly because I was, I was bored. I was looking to do something bigger with my life. Um, and uh, I spent time in the Marine Corps in Okinawa, Japan. I was assigned to the Pentagon and worked for the Secretary of the Navy. Um, I had a position on a State Department team in Iraq in 2004 and 2005 doing reconstruction work and political work uh, as a Department of Defense civilian. Um, I led a Marine Corps company back to Iraq in 06 and 07 uh, as a combat engineer uh, a company commander. Uh, and then I ended up receiving a direct appointment into the Foreign Service uh, in uh, early 2009, um, went to Afghanistan. A lot of me, I think what I was expecting was that the Obama administration was going to seek peace, seek an end to the conflict. The President Obama had campaigned on winning the war in Afghanistan. But when he said so, he said so in the context of sending two brigades of troops, which is about 6,000 or 7,000 men and women. He ended up sending over 70,000 plus an additional 40,000 NATO troops and 100,000 contractors. Uh, what I saw in Afghanistan in 2009 was the same as I had seen in Iraq in 04, 05, 06, 07, as well as when I worked on Iraq and Afghan war issues at the Pentagon and at the State Department in between those times. Um, there was no difference in the administrations. Uh, the administrations were both... Uh, their desire was to win politically, uh, or to win for political reasons, domestic political reasons. Uh, everything else was secondary. And so, particularly in 09, after I saw the elections stolen by the Afghan government, after so many have been killed in the run-up to that, um, I just couldn't go along with it any longer. I was basically broken inside. Um, and so, the fact that I'm here now, still doing this, was never my intention. Uh, it was just, it, it just has continued to go along, it, almost as if uh, my work uh, in anti-war 
or peace activism has been a way to make up for what I did in the wars. What have you done the last 10 years? Uh, well, I, I became a, a think tank expert, uh, so I have a title at a think tank, which is nothing really more than a title, but I'm a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, led a project called the Afghanistan Study Group in 2010, 2011, and 2012, which was a compilation of, uh, of, of about 40 or 50 different uh, international affairs experts, retired generals, uh, academics, arguing for basically what we're seeing now, a peace process in Afghanistan and an end to the war. Um, I've tried, tried to get away from this type of thing. Um, I've worked at the YMCA. I sold cars. I worked as a, as a consultant for a private uh, f f uh, uh, family philanthropic uh, fund. Um, none of that stuck. I keep coming back to this. A lot of veterans, no matter what war it is, will say, I left the war, but the war never left me. And that's, that's in my case. So I primarily I work with an organization now called Veterans for Peace. Um, I, I'm, I'm on a couple different uh, boards and advisory boards. Um, and uh, this is what I do. I've also struggled uh, with uh, the invisible wounds of war. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, moral injury, depression, uh, substance abuse, uh, and also in the last several years, traumatic brain injury has flared up uh, for me, just as so many other men and women are experiencing. There's a latency with traumatic brain injury. For me, it was probably from explosive blast exposure. Uh, it's around a lot of explosions, both in training and then in combat, of course. But it's very similar to what the football players, or it may be very similar to what the football players and the boxers are experiencing. Um, so I've had to deal with that uh, as well, which has been uh, not just a challenge for me, but a challenge for my family, um, a challenge for my wife, um, a real challenge for my wife. It, it's what she's gone through because of my wounds, those invisible wounds for the wars. Um, she has PTSD herself because of it. How much combat did you see Quite a bit. I mean, it was, you know, one of the misnomers about these wars is that uh, it, 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 men and women aren't seeing that much combat. And it's actually the complete, complete opposite. According to the VA, according to the, the Department of Defense, according to various uh, studies from, like, the RAND Corporation, veterans of the Afghan and Iraq wars have seen more combat than any other veteran of American wars. Um, as far back as the First World War, that's as far back as we have those those studies and that polling and that understanding. So we saw a lot. I mean, even when I was over there as a civilian working on reconstruction and, and politics and, and going to parliamentary meetings and, and provincial council meetings and working with engineers, we were constantly under IED attack, rocket attack, mortar attack. Uh, you constantly were in small arms engagements. My time when I led a company of Marines in Iraq in 06, 07, this was before the Sunni awakening uh, and the Sons of Iraq. Every time you left your base, every time you left your, your outpost, you got into something. You got into a gunfight or, or there was an RPG shot at you or a, a, a roadside bomb, you know, an IED went off. So we saw quite a lot. I saw quite a lot. Um, and it changes you, of course. And we know with PTSD, uh, basically you spend a year or seven or eight months or however long, every day going out, hunting people, and other people are hunting you. 
And that changes your entire body chemistry to change. That, we know that with PTSD, brain size and shape changes for soldiers who go over to war and come back. When they come back from the war, their brains are actually different sizes and shape because of PTSD, because your body is, is releasing all these survival chemicals constantly. And that, that causes you to have serious problems when you come home. Um, but for me and for many others, and I think this is what leads into uh, understanding why so many veterans of these wars are killing themselves, there's a moral component to it. So it's the civilians, it's the, it's the innocents who, one way or another, we took part in killing. And that is something that you can never get past, that moral injury. It, it's very much, you know, uh, uh, like uh, Macbeth, out, out, damn spot. You can't get that blood off your hands. Um, and so that sticks with you. And that brings you to uh, thoughts of suicide. And that's something I dealt with for a number of years. And, and I'm here because I had really great doctors at the VA who saved my life. Go back to your original resignation <clears throat> letter. The next day, the Washington Post, I believe, I don't have it in front of me, put you on page one? Uh, yeah, above the fold, too, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> above the fold on page one, yeah. headline, U.S. official resigns over Afghan war, written by Karen DeYoung. And in it, but by the way, why do you think it made the front page? Did you ever ask Karen DeYoung? I did. I said, why did you do this? Why did you write this 3,000 word or however long expose on me? And she said, because everything you said in your resignation letter and everything you've said to me, and at this point, DeYoung was, she was the, uh, she worked on Secretary Clinton's detail for the Post. So she covered Secretary Clinton in foreign affairs and the wars. She said, everyone I spoke to at the White House, at the NSC, at the Pentagon, at the State Department, all of them agreed with what you were saying about Afghanistan. In this piece early on, it says, well, he did not share Ho's view that the war, quote, wasn't worth the fight, unquote. Holbrook said, I agreed with much of his analysis. He asked Ho to join his team in Washington, saying, quote, if he really wanted to affect policy and help reduce the cost of war on lives and treasure, why not be inside the building rather than outside where you can get a lot of attention, but you won't have the same political impact? Did you talk to Richard Holbrook about this? Yeah, I did. I did. I went and saw him up at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. What was he doing then? He was, he was up there for the United Nations General Assembly. Um, he, uh, I met with him in his bedroom. He was reclining on his bed drinking a purple Gatorade. Um, you know, I mean, he was, he was shuttling in between all these different meetings. Um, I had just met uh, previously uh, the U.S. I mean, sorry, the U.K. ambassador to uh, Afghanistan, who later, uh, Sherrod Copper Coles, who later wrote a book about the war and how how the war was unwinnable, and not just unwinnable, uh, the war was a, was, was a moral failure. Uh, but Holberg, yeah, he did offer me that position. He told me uh, 95% of what I'd written he agreed with. Um, I left, and he had talked me into uh, taking that job. And I went home, took the train back home to Arlington, and um, thought about it, and on uh, you know a, a few days later, called back and said I can't do it because I didn't I didn't resign just to get myself promoted. I didn't I, I mean I quit because I was quitting the wars. I'm really done. Um, I, I I I I can't do this any longer. Um, and I also knew that nothing I did would have any impact. Uh, nothing nothing uh, I, I was 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 would have worked on would have changed 
the war. The decision had already been made. Um, and I can tell you this from discussions with Holbrook as well as with Ambassador Eikenberry, that they were effectively, they were voices of dissent of escalating the war, but they were shut down by Secretary Clinton. Secretary Clinton was very much in favor of escalating the war. Uh, you can see this uh, very clearly in stories written in the New York Times at that time or in uh, 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 Bob Woodward's Obama's wars. Uh, Secretary Clinton was very enthusiastic about escalating the Afghan war to the point that Holbrook and Eikenberry had no voice. So, and I knew that. And, and so it made no sense for me to accept that offer and to, to, to join that team. It wouldn't have changed anything. We're 10 years later, and one of the reasons we ask you to come here because you wrote a huge piece uh, about the last 10 years and how you feel about it now. And that was in... Uh, the title of this piece is uh, Time for Peace in Afghanistan and an end to the lies. Uh, where can people read that? Uh, they can find that at Counterpunch. Counterpunch? Counterpunch, yep. And what is Counterpunch? Counterpunch is a... Is a uh, uh, I'm not even sure how long Counterpunch has been around for, but it's uh, it certainly, to say it leans left to center, is probably a bit of a, 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 of a, a misstatement, of, a, of, a, of, of not saying enough about it. But uh, it's been around for a long time, um, and it is a, a, a very good, very thorough, very in-depth look at American politics and the world from uh, a left-of-center perspective. The word lies is in the headline of your piece. What lies are you talking about? Oh, there, there's, I mean, from start to finish with this war, with the notion of who we put in power in Afghanistan, that somehow these men that we put in power were uh, Democrats or were in favor of women's rights, let alone the fact that the complete, completely ignoring their roles as warlords, as war criminals, as drug lords, um, the notion that the Taliban have never wanted peace. You're talking about, by the way, when you say Democrats, you're talking about yeah, yeah, exactly. Iraqis and, and Afghanistan. Yes, exactly, in the a, in a sense of believing in a democratic process, and that what we were creating in Afghanistan was an actual democracy, when in reality uh, it is an incredibly corrupt, uh, uh, predatory uh, kleptocracy. Um, it, you know, the lies continue into when things are discussed about uh, the drugs in Afghanistan. You hear that uh, the, the poppy crops and the, the, the uh, uh, drug trade is primarily done by the Taliban. And that may be true now because the Taliban has gained so much land in the last few years. But for most of our time in Afghanistan, the drug trade has really been in control by the Afghan government and the Afghan military. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the lies that go on that somehow... American boys and girls are over there killing and being killed in order to keep us safe. That if we're not there, another 9-11 is going to happen. Well, that completely is, is belied by understanding of the 9-11 attacks, by the fact that yeah, Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan, but the 9-11 hijackers spent more time in the United States than they did in Afghanistan. The most important safe haven for those hijackers were United States flight academies and those martial arts gyms they went to, let alone the fact that the planning was really took place and the preparation took place in Germany and Pakistan. They had meetings in Spain and Malaysia, possibly uh, uh, in the UAE. 
Um, so the idea that they needed Afghanistan, as if the, the, the jets that struck the Twin Towers took off from Kandahar Airport, uh, uh, is one of the, the, the greatest and, and most tragic lies, uh, because what that lie does is it dishonors the memory of everyone who's been killed, whether they, they were killed uh, on September 11th, whether they've been killed in combat, whether they've been killed as innocents in the Afghan war. And not only that, it, we act as if the Afghan war was born or was hatched on September 11th. When this war started, I was born in 1973, the same year the king was deposed in Afghanistan. And you can trace this war to that. I mean, the, if I was an Afghan man, I would have lived my whole life with, at best, political chaos and normally war. Um, so that's another lie that somehow this war began on September 11th, that it hasn't been going on for over 40 years now. Um, and, and, and so you can unpack these things and go further into it. But the reality is, is that almost 17 plus years, getting close to, we're, we're, we're going to be hitting 18 years uh, uh, it, it come October in terms of how long our troops have had been on the ground, again, killing and being killed. And we talk about this with these sound bites that are completely unrelated to the reality of the conflict there. Now, I'm going to say something that may not be perfectly accurate, but you can correct me. You almost never hear anybody in this country talking about the Afghan situation. Not, not entirely, but members of Congress don't talk about it. Once in a while, there's a hearing on it. Why do you think that is? I, I don't, and I agree with you. I had a friend of mine running for Congress uh, last year. Uh, in the year and a half she spent campaigning, she got exactly one question about the wars. Not about the Afghan wars, but the wars in general. So we, we have, you know, if you look at what, uh, at the, what uh, journalists like Nick Terse have done, who, who writes for The Intercept or Vice or Tom Dispatch, uh, or what the Cost of War Project has done up at Brown University, you know, we have active combat operations in 14 different countries right now. We're bombing at least seven nations. So today, today, as, you're, as people are watching this show, we took the lives of people in seven different countries. And we're going to do it again tomorrow. And so it's not just a discussion about the Afghan war. It's a discussion about all the wars, what we're doing overall. Uh, not just in the Middle East, but now throughout Africa. Um, why this is, I think, I, I think that there is, a, and you, you contrast it to what I was, I've been told it was like during the Vietnam War, where the Vietnam War was on at dinner time every night. Um, I think there's a, there's, there's a, a real fear in much of the media uh, to negatively speak about the war, uh, to get into details about the war. I also think, you know, and this is something that, you know, so a guy like Noam Chomsky or something talks about a lot, it's hard to talk about something complex in two or three minutes or in 500 words. So for much of our media, it's framed. It's not like this show where we've got an hour to talk, which is, this is, this is, uh, this is great journalism. This is what it's supposed to be, right? Um, you know, you've got two or three minutes. I one time was asked about by a journalist about uh, 
this, this argument about safe havens, whether or not Afghanistan is a safe haven. And I started to explain, like, look, they really don't need, you know, these kinds of safe havens. They don't need large amounts of land. How much room do you need to plan a hijacking? You need a basement or you need somebody's apartment or a backyard, you know? I mean, you don't need much. And he said, whoa, whoa, I can't. And this, and this is a, a pretty uh, a prominent journalist. He said, whoa, 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 I can't go into all that. That's going to take up too much room in the column. So I think a lot of it is just the fact that once we get a narrative going, once, and it's probably just not just, not just with uh, the wars, you could probably say it's about, say, health care or, say, uh, Social Security or, or any other issue. Uh, once we get a narrative going, it's really difficult because of the way our media is set up in two to three minute segments or 500, 600 word columns uh, to go back and reassess that narrative. You talk in a lot of these pieces and there's so much in there. <clears throat> we won't get to half of it. Uh, the Pashtun. We have a map I want to put up on the screen that shows Afghanistan and where Pash, Pash, the Pashtun area also is over in Pakistan. Can you explain what are we looking at in this map, and what would you want people to know about uh, your experience in, in this area? Okay, well, well, of course, you know, going from left to right, uh, the far left is Iran, Afghanistan, then Pakistan, and then India. Um, understanding that up to 100, or I'm sorry, up to uh, 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 75 years ago or so, until after World War II, there was no Pakistan in India. There was only the one country ruled by the United Kingdom. Um, and the same, going back now over 100 years, the border between Afghanistan and India, as it was at that time, was nebulous. It really didn't exist. And it was drawn, like so much of uh, the Muslim world, so much of Africa, so much of, of, of some parts of Asia, by uh, uh, European diplomats, just basically drawing a line down the map. And what you have there, the Afghanistan and Pakistan border, is what's called the Duran Line. And the idea behind that was for the British, who had, set, who had spent, who had uh, gone to war three different times in Afghanistan, um, never successfully, always, always very bloody, always a, a punch to the nose, uh, very much an embarrassment to their pride, as well as they never achieved their objectives. The idea was to divide the Pashtun people with that border. And so what you get is you get the Pashtuns, which by some estimates are the largest tribe in the world, uh, 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 divided by uh, a border written by a British diplomat 100 years ago. And what that does then creates then is within Afghanistan, you have uh, Afghanistan is a country made up of many different ethnicities, uh, different religions. Um, you have the Pashtun people who are in Afghanistan constitute about 40% of uh, the Afghan people. Um, and they are primary in the south and the east. Um, and what you have found over the last 40 years in particular um, was that whether it's been the United States or the Soviet Union or other nations, India, Pakistan, Iran, um, they have, we have utilized those ethnic differences for the purposes of the war. So we saw this first under Jimmy Carter's presidency with Zygmunt Brzezinski, 
who was a national security advisor at the time, who his idea was to fan the flames of not just Muslim unrest in the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union at that time extended all the way down to Afghanistan, to cause ethnic problems and religious unrest in that, and, and as, he, as they described it, the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union. And so that begins this long process of ethnic division, a division that really didn't exist, and very similar, Brian, very similar to what happened in Iraq, where there, the, the Shia-Sunni divide in Iraq didn't exist in reality, uh, and certainly not violently. It didn't exist anyway as, say, the civil war that was raging in, in, in Iraq 10 years ago until the United States invaded. And you could trace this back to the Native Americans. The United States government, the United States military, has used a policy of playing off one ethnic group, one religious group, one, one uh, uh, tribal group against another for centuries now. So the importance of understanding about the Pashtuns in Afghanistan is that they constitute or nearly constitute the whole of the Pashtun, of, of, I'm sorry, of the Taliban insurgency. And they constitute almost nothing of the Afghan government and Afghan military. Now, of course, you can point and say, hey, look, Ghani is, a, Ghani is uh, 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 President Ghani of Afghanistan, President Karzai of Afghanistan, there are Pashtuns. But that's like pointing to President Obama and saying, because we had, a, we had a black president of the United States, we don't have any racial problems in the United States, or the fact that, you know, uh, there isn't a wealth gap in between blacks and white in the U.S. because we had a black president. So, what you can see is, is that you have this, this insurgency that's almost completely composed of Pashtuns against a government and an army that, by the last count I saw, was only 4% Pashtun. So you very much have this divide. Ar- you're talking about the army of Afghanistan. Of Afghanistan. Um, last count I saw, only 4% of their soldiers were Pashtun. In your letter 10 years ago, you listed, you said the Afghan government's failings, particularly when weighed against the sacrifice of American lives and dollars, appear legion and uh, uh, metastatic. And he lists things. And the first one on the list is glaring corruption and unabashed graft. Yeah. Yeah. Who gets this? Where's the corruption and who gets the the graft? It, it, It goes, first of all, I would say, and I think many Americans who look at this would understand that the graph starts here in this country, where corporations receive the lion's bulk of uh, or, or the bulk of, of of the funding for the war. I remember when I was working on reconstruction work in Afghanistan, in, I'm sorry, in Iraq, 40 percent of every dollar, so 40 cents on each dollar that the Congress had appropriated for, for Iraq Reconstruction never even left the United States. Right off the bat, for overhead and management costs, went right to corporations here in the United States. And the same occurs in Afghanistan. But everybody takes their cut. And not just in a way that you would think a, 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 a corruption uh, uh, to grease the wheels, to make sure the machine works. This is, uh, as I said, unabashed and it's, it's, well, I mean, you can look at what we know about it. We, can, we know that, that billions and billions of dollars each year in cash are moved out of the Kabul airport. We know that. 
we know that there are billions of dollars, more money is leaves more money in cash leaves the Kabul airport out of Afghanistan than the Afghan government budget budget. Where does it go? It goes offshore to Dubai. It goes offshore to Europe. It goes into various local banks. Who's doing it? It is uh, everyone who is somehow connected to the war, including the highest levels. So when You're talking about Americans, well, no. The Americans get the money through what others would say, others outside the United States would say, is corruption because it's that's cooked into the system. Okay, as I said, forty percent of every dollar that the Congress appropriates for building bridges, say in Afghanistan, stays right here in the U.S. It goes right to the corporation overheads many times, right? But do you or it goes any, into security costs. Do or, you have any idea how the physical money gets from here to Kabul and then physically gets from Kabul to someplace yeah, else? We, we, sure. we put it, and I had this in Iraq when I, because it's very, the, the, it's very similar. When I was in Iraq and I was running my reconstruction programs, uh, one program I had was $50 million. Uh, it was all done in cash. The most money I ever had once in my possession was $26 million. I kept that in safes in my bedroom in, on the base I lived in, the Crete, and we paid that money out in cash. It came right from the Federal Reserve, was shrink-wrapped, $100 bills. You can get $6 million in your standard sea bag or, or duffel bag, that standard green military duffel bag. That holds $6 million. So those, that money arrives in pallets in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or Syria or wherever these things, Libya, wherever these, these wars are taking place, it is then moved under control of the U.S. government and U.S. military, and it's then paid out through various mechanisms, various types of projects, various types of programs, uh, building schools, buying desks for the schools, paying teachers. Um, and you, by the way... Take some of that for yourself? No, 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 I never did. I was no, 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 I didn't uh, say you did. <laughs> but, I mean, could you have? Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. did you know anybody that did it? Yes, I did. Uh, I, I know that, just for example, my predecessor in Tikrit in Iraq, um, he left the day that I arrived. After I showed up, uh, $200,000 was found in his bedroom. I took over for this guy, and he had just pages and pages of paperwork no, no pay receipts, though. No receipts of actually, you know, in because the way this way the wars were running, because of the desperation, because of of of, of, of what other choice do you have? If you're an Iraqi or an Afghan engineer or contractor, you're going to take whatever is given to you, and particularly if it's coming from the United States. So very easily, I could have, and I, I spent time dreaming about if I was going to write a novel, how would I do it? And I, I would have moved the money up to Kurdistan. And then gone back and gotten the money. But, you know, you spend your whole life looking over your shoulder for the FBI or, or, or something like that at that point, or the Treasury Department, I guess. But there have been. There are a, 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 a good many stories of this money showing back up in the United States because it comes right from the Federal Reserve, right? And, it, and, and because it, it, the, the banks know that this money shouldn't show, be showing back up in the U.S., but it has. It shows back up around Fort Benning or around Fort Hood, Texas, you know, around Camp Pendleton, California, because it's so easy to take this money. Now, to get it back here, it, it requires a bit uh, of work because you have to go through customs and everything. But if you're, in, 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 if you're not too greedy, if you're only going to take 40000 or 50000 back rather than $4 million, 
probably get away with it. No one's looking for that. Now, on the, on the say, the Iraqi or the Afghan side, that money, after it arrives in uh, Afghanistan and then changes hands to the Afghans uh, and various people take their cuts, that money just gets transported directly out of Afghanistan. We, we know because of, of, because of WikiLeaks, we know that the Afghan vice president showed up in Dubai with $55 million in his suitcases, U.S. taxpayer money that he was just bringing, and no repercussions at all. But if you know this, why doesn't the Congress know it? And I know we've had John Sopko on this network many times, who is the special uh, IG for Afghanistan. And he talks about this. It doesn't. Does it seem to matter? It just you don't ever hear where anything any of this is stopped. It, it, it it's very frustrating, and it's heartbreaking. Um, Let me read something yeah. you wrote in your piece. This latest piece we're talking about. The idea of military success and hard-won gains has nothing, has been nothing but craven and homicidal war propaganda trumpeted by U.S. generals and the world's largest public relations operation and bleated uh, obediently by politicians and shamefully journalists. The Pentagon spends, and, and journalists, I, I'm sorry about the way I'm reading it, uh, Pentagon spends almost $5 billion a year on recruiting public relations and psychological operations. By comparison, the largest public relations company in the world had annual fees uh, for all of its clients of less than $900 million. Yeah. Yeah, that, Where did you get that figure? So, oh, uh, the nine hundred million—it's it, linked in the article, but it, it's for uh, through some public relations uh, uh, institute. But more I, importantly, I how, where did you get the five billion? Figure? Oh, the five billion is—is that's U.S. government data that that comes out of the 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 what is it the blue book or whatever the uh, uh, if you go to uh, uh, one you can go to the Department of Defense website and the budget's all there. You can go to OPM and look at it there, or you can just Google as I did. What is the Pentagon's budget? Uh, for public relations, and there have been numerous articles written about this. So none of this is hidden. This is this is well known. Um, I'm blanking on exactly what source I use for the five billion figure in there. But you sourced everything. I've sourced everything, and everything is sourced. Every and it's sourced using U.S. government or U.S. military data, United Nations data, Afghan government data, um, or if it's used journalism, I'm not using some far-left or far-right alternative media, uh, I think probably I quote from the New York Times the most in there. Um, or well, let me ask you this, because I, I, I know what some people in the audience think when we have these guests on. People out there are saying, PTSD's gotten to this guy. Yeah. He's a left-winger. He's way over there. He has no sense of the responsibility, the worldwide responsibility that the United States government has to stop all this stuff. What do you say to them? I say use your own brain. I mean, you use your own... I mean, what are your politics, your, your overall politics? And yeah. what were they when you first went into the Marine Corps? Uh, well, I, bought, I voted for Bob Dole in 1996. Uh, in 1992 was the first time I couldn't vote, and I didn't like any of my choices. Or I could vote, and I didn't vote. Uh, uh, and voted for Dole in 96 and went into the Marine Corps. Reading The Economist, uh, you know, being a, a conservative like most of my family was. And at some point uh, around 1999, 2000, I started moving more to the left. Uh, and now uh, I am in many ways a socialist. It, 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 it not, now, if I was European, of course, I would be 
just uh, a member of of, 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 a, of a left party. But I have come to understand the world uh, that we have to work together. That uh, so I'm a civil libertarian. So I'm against government surveillance. I'm against government saying what you can do in your bedroom. You know, I'm against overpolarization. Um, if you're actually to look at what I actually am, I am a, 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 a libertarian socialist. Uh, so I believe in working together. But what does socialism mean to you? Socialism just means to me that we are working for the, for the benefit of the whole as opposed to individual, which is what I believe capitalism is about. So I, I, I'm a believer that we need to come together to move forward. And we have done that in the past. And in our best examples in this country, when we have moved forward, we've done it together. Um, so my understanding and my beliefs are that there is no way we can survive. And when I say survive, uh, you know, I'm talking about climate change. I'm talking about the divisions in this country. I'm talking about, uh, you know, another aspect of, of the work I do, uh, the dangers of nuclear war, which is something we never or hardly ever spoken about. But For the yeah. time being, let's go back to the yeah. Afghanistan sure. situation. Uh, <laughs> That's a whole other episode, I, right? <laughs> true. But uh, let's go to February the 8th, 2019. Here is some video of Zalmay Khalizad, who uh, is the special representative of this government to try to negotiate with the Taliban. By the way, is there a way quickly for you to define who the Taliban are? It's it's they're not a monolithic organization. Um, the best way to describe it are primarily Pashtun groups who are fighting against foreign occupation and against the government in Kabul, um, as well as traditional enemies. Remember, this war goes back to the 70s. These men, their grandfathers fought originally in the 70s. So much of this goes back to conflicts and grievances and rivalries that go back four decades. Okay, let's watch uh, Zalmay Khalizad and get, give me your reaction to this. After many uh, conversations, we have reached an agreement in principle with the Taliban on a framework that would provide guarantees and enforcement mechanism that no terrorist group, international terrorist group or individuals would be able to use Afghanistan, the areas that they control, and should they be part of a future government against the United States, its allies, and others. What is your reaction when you hear him say that? The, the Taliban have been saying that for over 10 years now. Um, you, if you go and you look at the statements from, at that time, their supreme leader, Mullah Omar, going back in his, uh, he, he would produce uh, uh, annual statements, and he would say exactly what Khalizat has said. When bin Laden died, Osama bin Laden was killed in 2011, the Taliban's official statement about that was, we respect him because he fought against the Soviets, and then he fought against the Americans, and we respect him, but his war was not our war. Our wars in Afghanistan, we had nothing to do with bin Laden. Here, so, here's the current president of uh, Afghanistan from 2001 to 2014. It was Hamid Karzai. Karzai, thank you. Here is Afrash Ghani currently, and I want your reaction to this. The United States is not there because it's, a, it's fighting in Afghanistan. It's fighting for its security. Second... We have engaged in a very open dialogue 
the United States as a sovereign power, as a global power, is entitled to leave. But we need to get the departure right. Are the fundamental reasons that brought the United States to Afghanistan, are those objectives accomplished? That was in the month of February, yeah. And he says the, what brought the United States to Afghanistan, that's been accomplished. I'm very suspect of the Afghan government because the government that's propped up by the United States. So the desire for the Afghan government to see the United States leave is not there. Because How much it, has this war in Afghanistan only cost the uh, American taxpayer? Well, directly, it's almost a trillion dollars. How many people have we lost? Uh, 2,500 plus another 1,800 or so contractors and relying on Department of Veterans Affairs figures. And you can't really untie the Afghan and Iraq wars because uh, the money crosses over what's as well. That total but but, cost? but in terms of total cost you're looking at what's gonna what it's gonna cost in terms of future as well as that uh, six trillion dollars. We have spent, according to Brown University, just on debt payments on these wars. So just on because we're paying for these wars uh, we're not funding these wars. These wars are being paid on the credit card basically. So according to Brown University, we have already spent over $700 billion just on debt payments, on interest payments for these wars. But with regards to the, 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 the bodily cost, the physical cost of the wars, when you look at suicide data from the Department of Veterans Affairs, 9,000 American soldiers, American men and women who have served in Iraq or Afghanistan have killed themselves since coming home from the wars. How so that's a number that you can't, you can't divorce from that. How close did you come to... to I came very sense? close. I, I came, I was, uh, a number of times, I, I tell you, I, I was getting my, my, putting my cat in the, had the cat in the crate, and the dog was getting leashed up, and I was going to my vet to drop them off, and then I was going to go kill myself. There's been times I've walked into uh, the Walmart, looked at the gun I was going to use, um, I've always been fortunate that I haven't owned a weapon, or else I probably wouldn't be here. Um, so I came close How a number of times. How did you stop from going that far? Uh, there's a couple of things. One is I had professional help, and that's the reason why. Uh, secondly, I called the crisis line. Um, I called the, 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 the people who are dedicated to answering those calls, and a number of times that saved me. But the only reason why was because I got professional help. The first time I ever got professional help was now it was almost, um, it was the beginning of 2012. My first therapist had been in the Navy. He had gone through very similar experiences. That's the only reason why I trusted him. I mean, so many of us come out of these wars, and if you didn't carry a rifle, I'm not going to listen to what you said. You don't know anything you're talking about. So I needed someone like that that I could trust. And he's the one who got me on the path to be able to be here with you today. Uh, but I was laying on the floor, broken down in 2012, and I had to decide, either go put that gun in your mouth today or get help. And fortunately, I chose to get help. When did you get married? Uh, we just got married this past year. But we have known each other since 2004. We met in the Pentagon. And um, she has been with me. We've had a saga uh, but she has known me since before the wars, and she's seen me every time I've come home for the wars, and she's been with me in so many ways. 
Um, we've been back together now for five years or so. Um, but, uh, yeah, she has, uh, she's a veteran of this war as much as I am. Back in 2017, here is... General David Petraeus, who was the boss in Iraq, I mean, in Afghanistan and Iraq for yeah. some time. Let's watch this. It's not very long. This is a generational struggle. Uh, this is not something that is going to be won in a few years. We're not going to take a hill, plant the flag, and go home to a victory parade. And we need to be there for the long haul, but in a way that is, again, sustainable. You know, we've been in Korea for 65-plus years because there's an important national interest for that. We need to be there for the long haul. No, we don't. Absolutely not. Our presence, and, and this is something that General Petraeus himself has said, our presence causes these insurgencies. For every one, quote, terrorist, unquote, we kill, we create 10 more. I mean, th this, is, uh, this is knowledge, well-known knowledge. Uh, also, too, one of the things, when I, when I signed up to go to Afghanistan, General Petraeus had taken on Central Command. So he was in charge of the Middle East for the United States military. And Remember very clearly his thoughts were that, his, his, his words were that we were going to seek peace, that we were going to talk to the Taliban just like we talked to the Sunni insurgency in Iraq. What strikes me so much about that comment there about Korea is that as we now see what's happened over the last year and a half with North Korea, it's all happening just because we're talking to them. And that's what's happening now with this peace process in Afghanistan. Just like what happened in, in, in Iraq with the Sunnis in 07, 08, when I, in 06, 07, uh, when I was there. All we did was start talking to them. And the violence stopped. They came forward with their grievances. We said, yes, that's understandable. And we, we worked to figure out a way past that. That's what we're seeing now with these talks in, Af in Afghanistan. All it took was just us saying, yes, we'll talk to you. And now there's a, a potential peace process. I want to show you a chart. And, and it's all because of reading your stuff and, and the background. There's one of these organizations that you're a member of called, um, oh, where is it, World Beyond War. Oh, yes. What yeah. is World Beyond War? World Beyond War is, is just exactly like it sounds, it, it, Ryan. It, it, it's an organization devoted to creating a world without war. That, and, it, and it sounds Pollyannish. But I, I, I tell you what, there, there's no other alternative. Well, so, one yeah. of the things, and I just came across it, a link to it, is the U.S. Census Bureau showing the number of bullets that this country sends over the years. Yeah. It's, if you look on the chart, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2007, 2018 through November. And if you look up some of the big numbers there, that uh, worldwide we've, we have uh, sent cartridges and parts thereof to uh, 474 million. Yeah. And then it goes down the list in some of the bigger countries. Afghanistan was 123 million bullets. Yeah. Canada, 74. It doesn't explain why. What Do you have any idea what all this is? Why, why, why we're... This is just an example of, of just the amount of bullets. Not planes, not tanks, not ships, but just bullets, whether it's 5.56 five, or 7.62 millimeter, uh, just the amount of rounds that we export as a country each year. So one of the, 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 the title, uh, subtitles I used in, in my piece was, even a losing war makes money. And it's true. The amount of money involved in these wars are what allow the wars to continue to go on. It, it, it's what underlines 
the wars. Uh, it is campaign donations to members of Congress. It is think tanks that are funded by the defense industry that then go into Congress and say, this is what we're going to do. I, had, uh, I met with uh, uh, Senator Bob Casey's staff. Uh, Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Democrat. A, a Democrat on a, on a Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he has a military officer on his staff, like so, like everyone in the Senate and most members of the House do. And this military officer told me, because he was upset by this, he said, you know what, seven out of ten briefings that we get on Afghanistan or Iraq doesn't come from the CIA or the Pentagon or the State Department. It comes from these outside think tanks, like Institute for Study of War, Center for New American Security, American Enterprise Institute, that receive millions of dollars each year from the defense industry. So this money is circular. And that is one example of, yeah, even a w losing war makes money. Former ambassador, I believe both Iraq and Afghanistan, Ryan Crocker, here's 30 seconds of him. I want your reaction to this. You, you have to understand the Pakistani perspective as well. Uh, we walked out of them, we, we walked out on them uh, in the early 90s after the Soviet defeat in Afghanistan, um, uh, slapping sanctions on them, um, and uh, heading home. Uh, Pakistanis are never going to forget that. What we have to do now is provide some assurances that this time we're not going home. Uh, this time mm. we're going to stay with whatever force composition uh, makes sense uh, because we have vital interests at stake here. Well, that's one of the myths, uh, this idea that we left Afghanistan when the Soviets left. We didn't. We continued to fund the various rebel groups, the Mujahideen groups, for over three years until the government in Kabul fell. We had no interest in a peace process. We wanted victory. And that led directly to the civil war that brought about the Taliban. One of the things, too, that Ambassador Crocker, it strikes me, and as I just heard this again recently, is that over the last couple of decades, the Pakistani people have seen 70,000 people killed through terrorist acts. You know, I heard that, and I made a, I, you know, it, it made me, made me, you know, uh, really startled me. That amount of people, that would be the equivalent of, you know, we have roughly three and a half sizes, we're roughly three and a half times the size of, 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 of Pakistan. You're talking about 200 to 250,000 Americans being killed over the same period. So the Pakistanis have uh, very legitimate grievances, some of which, uh, you know, uh, Ambassador Crocker does speak to but others that we don't talk about ourselves, that we don't, we don't acknowledge. We don't acknowledge what these wars have cost them. Um, as well as, too, again, this, that was a good example of the myth, that we, we just got up and left. We, no, we didn't. We stayed funding those groups for years after the Soviets left. Here's former general, I mean, <clears throat> retired general Jack King, talking about this subject. From 2003, Stuart, to 2008, Afghanistan was on a diet. We never provided adequate resources. The Taliban reemerged during that time frame and gained momentum. It wasn't until late 2008 that President Bush, because of the success of the surge in Iraq, he was able to put some forces in. And then Obama put some forces in in 2009 and 10, but shorted the commanders by 25% and then pulled the forces out. Mm. 15 months later. So we have never, ever gone about this thing appropriately with the right strategy and the right amount of forces. Uh, he's one of those craven warmongers I was talking about. General Keene, who is chief of staff of the Army, um, has institutionalized madness, I believe. 
He is, is completely, uh, uh, he is not stating factually what occurred uh, in Afghanistan. During, but, but why wouldn't he? I mean, he's not here. So. Well, he, he's, I mean, a number of reasons. One, he's on a tremendous number of boards for arms companies. General Keene is, if people are aware of the recent controversy of the, of the Trump administration wanting to sell nuclear technology to uh, the Saudis uh, without the approval of Congress, well, the company that's involved in that, IP3, General Keene founded that company. General Keene is on, again, the boards of many different arms companies, like the ones that export 475 million billets a year. But in a, in a way, though, you're suggesting that General Keene is not a good American, that he's not patriotic, this is all about his pocketbook. Absolutely. I have no problem saying that. I, I have no problem because so many people have died. So many people are living lives of hell now because of men like General Keene and because of the lies he keeps telling. We didn't ignore Afghanistan for all those years. We went after the Taliban mercilessly. We were backing warlords who were, who were, who were trying to settle decades-old uh, 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 decades quarrels. We were backing drug lords for all those years. We started expanding NATO in Afghanistan in 2006. It was only when we got to the American sector in 08 that we started putting American troops in. And then he talks about uh, shorting the, the commanders by 25%. We didn't have the troops to do it. The, the, Obama, we just did not have that many troops to send. And besides, again, Obama sent 70,000 American troops. He sent 40,000 NATO troops. He sent 100,000 contractors. That's 200,000 troops. So Keem wants you to believe that another, an, another 25% more would have made a difference? Right after your letter of resignation that ended up on the front page of the Washington Post in 2009, a couple months later, Barack Obama said the following on December the 1st about more troops. We will pursue a military strategy that will break the Taliban's momentum and increase Afghanistan's capacity over the next 18 months. The 30,000 additional troops that I'm announcing tonight will deploy in the first part of 2010 the fastest possible pace so that they can target the insurgency and secure key population centers. They'll increase our ability to train competent Afghan security forces, and they will help create the conditions for the United States to transfer responsibility to the Afghans. Again, at that point... Ten years later. Now. Ten years later. At that point, at speech, he'd already sent 40,000 troops. Um, something that was barely talked about while he was doing it, and this is why when I was there in 09. Then he spent, so he sends all these extra troops. I, I wish President Obama was here now. Uh, I wish he was here to explain how he felt about it. Um, if you read books like Obama's Wars by Bob Woodward, you see that he was very skeptical. I remember when, when President Obama first uh, received recommendations in the fall uh, to expand the war, continue to expand the war in Afghanistan, he said, where has this been successful? Has it ever worked? And they couldn't show him where it had worked. And all they did was the Pentagon, all they did was give him small, medium, large uh, uh, escalation. The large escalation was completely impossible because we didn't have that many troops, just did not have that many troops in the U.S. And so what President Obama does in 09 is... The small escalation was 20,000 troops, 
the, law, the medium escalation was 40,000. I'm going to cut the difference, 30,000 troops. And that's what happens. We're about out of time, and I want to make sure that we go over some things quickly. If people want to read your article, Time for Peace in Afghanistan and an End to the Lies, where do they go? Uh, go to counterpunch.org. And you served how many years in the United States Marine Corps? Ten years. And you served in how many different war situations? Well, I went to Iraq twice and Afghanistan once. How long did you work for the uh, State Department? Oh, in, in Afghanistan, it was only for a period of five months. Uh, I couldn't, couldn't do any more than that. And before I forget, what is the white flower on your lapel? Uh, most people are familiar with the red poppy that recognizes the deaths of soldiers. The white poppy recognizes the deaths of everyone involved in combat, uh, soldier and civilian alike. It's to remember all the losses and all the suffering of war. Last question to you is, how have you recovered? How, at what point have you re is there a recovery at this point from PTSD and concussion and all that stuff? I, uh, uh, I take 19 pills a day. Sometimes I take as many as 26 because the migraines, the exhaustion, the being overwhelmed, uh, mood issues. Uh, I go to therapy uh, weekly. I have a great therapist at the Washington, D.C. VA. Um, but it is, it is uh, my primary. I only do things like this when I'm able to, uh, and I certainly don't work. Uh, I'm 100% disabled. I, I, I can't work, basically. Uh, I just don't have the ability to do it full time. Um, after an interview like this, sitting with you for an hour, I'll probably sleep for 14 or 15 or 16 hours to recover from it. And the rest of the, uh, you know, the next couple of days will be not good days for me. So, and it, 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 it's, but, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. I'm not saying any of this to gain sympathy other than just to communicate so that people can understand that these wars don't really ever end, that they come home and they stay home with us. And if we continue them or if we expand them or begin new ones, we're going to be a whole new generation of young men and women and their families and their communities that are going to live through that kind of hell. Matthew Ho, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.